Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Fire Science Show. Episode 10, wow, that sounds like some sort of a mini milestone. I'm very glad to be here for the 10th time and I'm very happy that you are here with me. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, I hope you stick around. And if you're actually listening for the 10th time, I really appreciate that you are here with me. I'm really thankful to every one of you that send me nice messages on email or LinkedIn and uh, comment on the, on the show, share it with friends. This is really something that pushes me forward. And uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative to, to, to all these efforts that you take your time to reach out to me. For today's episode, um, I have a little bit more relaxed topic, however, still very, very important for the fire safety engineering as a whole discipline. Uh, today, I've invited Dr. John Gales from York University, who is some sort of Indiana Jones of fire. His passion is his history, and uh, he's doing a really great job uncovering the historical backgrounds of fire safety origins. And today we're going to discuss in depth one of the aspects of fire safety engineering, that is the standard temperature time curve or relation, if I may. The standard temperature time relation is uh, a description of the evolution of temperature in time that we are using to test elements for fire resistance in our furnaces. And it's something that has been standardized for over 100 years. I was actually quite shocked when I've learned that the curve is already 100 years old. And when I've learned that, I've came to realization that it did not really change that much since the 1917 when it was invented. And still today, it's the basis of the assessment of fire resistance and in a way a proxy of fire safety in, in, in structural fire engineering world. So... The background, how the curve was invented, how it came to life, is something that shapes modern buildings. So it's definitely something that we need to understand and know because any limitations of that time have uh, consequences in our time. More to that, many of the discussions we're having today, the important discussions like mass timber and fire, are things that have already been discussed 100 years ago when the curve was created. And many of, of the thoughts back then are still relevant to the today's discussions. And uh, yeah, in 1970s, we, we had this very good two-piece paper by Bobrovskis and Williamson who have covered most of the origins of the standardized fire testing and uh, how the curve was created. And for me, that was a corner store piece of knowledge that uh, explained how this came to life and uh, what are the limits of the curve that come from the times of, of its origin. But then... I started talking to John, and John, uh, John did something very brave. He did, uh, he did not stop at the research done by Bobrowskas, but he was uh, looking for more knowledge, for more sources, for more papers from the time when the curve was created. And he spent a significant part of his uh, academic career. Uh, he mentioned it. It took him 10 years to write the paper that we're discussing today um, to actually uncover the, the other narratives to the story. And as he mentioned, he he was seeking for the reasons why, why some decisions were taken. And uh, it's absolutely fascinating to discuss 
existed. Since we're going to talk about the story of the origins, uh, it's very related to the people who created the, the standard curve and who were the most important characters of their time in fire safety. And uh, yeah, you're going to hear a lot about uh, Ira Wilson, who was an American scientist who was very much responsible for uh, standardizing the, the, the fire resistance testing. You're going to hear about uh, Sylvanus Reed, who was his colleague, and uh, he was a furnace designer. And John attributes a lot of the aspects of the modern fire testing to, to Reed's work. Um, you're going to also hear about Edwin Zachs, who was an European engineer architect who has done some research on fire and structural fire engineering in, in Europe in here and um, who organized a very important event a conference in London in which a lot of knowledge about standardizing this curve was shared. Um, there are more, more characters to the story, but uh, to learn more about them, you probably have to study John's papers and yeah, it, it's absolutely worth it. In the episode, we will also touch some other aspects of, of fire resistance in a historical view because we're going to talk about some antique fire protection systems. And uh, from that, we'll jump into the fire safety of heritage buildings, which I think is a practical touch to the historical discussion that we're having. So, yeah, I, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, I have absolutely enjoyed talking to John. He's a fantastic guy and his knowledge about the, the history of and origins of fire and curves and, and, and the fire safety engineering as a whole is astounding. And I, I truly could speak to him for hours on this subject because it's something that fascinates me as well. So yeah, I, I hope you like this episode and without further ado, let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. My name is Wojciech Wigzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. Today, I'm here with Dr. John Gales from York University. Hey, John. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the invite. John, uh, besides being extremely talented fire safety engineer and scientist, is a kind of archivist of the fire science community because for some reason his passion is to dig into the history of, of fire science. In, in the green room, he mentioned that uh, the paper on, on historical origins of fire testing that we're going to discuss today it took him like 10 years to finish, which is, uh, <laughs> that's, that's amazing, man, to, to keep uh, amassing material for a paper for so, such long. And what a great paper that is. So before we jump into the origins of the fire testing and, and let's say fire resistance, uh, what are the origins of your interest in this in this historical aspect of that? Well, it's uh, I kind of try to keep it brief if I if I can <laughs> about it. Um, when I was back in high school, my majors were actually in history, and it wasn't until I uh, struggled with the idea that I felt I couldn't actually make a career out of it at the time. So I kind of abandoned it, picked up uh, engineering, and I always kind of had a interest about the history of technology in the background. And then when I started my PhD, um, you know, being in Edinburgh, there, there was all these old books and things to look at. And uh, I just started digging 
And then you start finding all these types of uh, works that, you know, nobody's seen in a hundred years or read in a hundred <laughs> years. And it just starts becoming really fascinating. And then there was all these parallels to what was going on today. And then, you know, started writing and then each of the drafts that I was putting together, I was never happy with. Okay. And part of why I was never happy with it is... I never could really think of what was the message and why should this paper exist? And it wasn't really until about two or three years ago and, and related to the the workshop where I started to think, actually, it needs to be talked about because the issues we're having with new technologies, not really new, but like timber, they were having back then with concretes and steel so then all of a sudden there is a message that needs to be talked about because how they dealt with this paradigm shift is pretty important about how we're dealing with this paradigm shift. So, but it took a long time before I was even comfortable to, to be quite honest, like I could probably spend another 10 years di diving into more materials and our paper kind of leads leaves it for that we we, we will uh, be very happy to receive more uh, fascinating papers on, on on that actually um and when you were doing your phd was that kind of the time where the bre uh, archive was transferred to edinburgh yeah and that and that was really interesting too because one of the people who did a previous history paper um said that there was this paper that had the origins of the standard fire and that it was based on melting and fusing points of metals. Mm -hmm. And the paper reference was by a guy named Bieberdorf, and it was written in the 1960s. So what happened was, is they said that they couldn't find the paper, and they said that the paper might not even actually exist. So uh, we went up into the BRE archive, which was just right above the iBay lab in, in Edinburgh, and the paper actually was there. And I remember going through it. And first off, the author wasn't an engineer. He was a medical doctor at a hospital. And he didn't even say anything about metal fusing or mm. melting points. And uh, so that was definitely not the origin paper. But it was interesting, at least to see that one reference that somebody didn't really look at very carefully became one of these source documents of these myths according to the origins of uh, the curve but the archive like there wasn't much before 1920 in there uh, most of the stuff in there was in the 1940s 50s and 60s mm. so if somebody did a follow-up to this and tried to cover that era there would be some useful things there but for this project that was mostly the extent of what uh, what was uh, found from it. So we have a little footnote about that in the uh, paper. You said it's important to track the the, the, the past because it affects the, the, the present time and, and actually how we'll tackle the future. And uh, I, seen this, I see this in modeling as well. I, I personally was, uh, I'm fascinated in, in the topic of the visibility in smoke and I, I had a podcast uh, episode on, on visibility as well with Gabriela. And in visibility in smoke, there, the, there is this series of five papers uh, by, by Jean which are actually written in Japanese. It's like everyone cites these papers and Jean did uh, an English version summary of, of the contents of all five of them. 
But uh, actually, um, I've paid <laughs> quite a significant amount of money to have these papers translated from Japanese to, to, to Polish and to be able to truly understand what, what's being there. And once you start reading them, it gives you such an um, in-depth view, you know, on, on things that you were taught or I taught that, that are like very flat and, and just maybe oversimplified by Jin. And no, they, they were not actually. The, the studies are, are, are beautiful. And uh, when you start reading them in their original form, you learn so many new new things, so many new views, because it seems the guy was, was, a, was a genius. And he was brilliant. And he... He was limited by the technology and, and capabilities of his times. That, that's, that's for sure. So, so the fact that the, the resulting model is oversimplified does not reflect on the scientists. It reflects on the times. And I think it, it may be a similar story with um, the fire resistance. Yeah, definitely. When you look at it, the, te the, the test in fire resistance was meant for concrete and steel. And they tried it with timber in the 1917-18 uh, column tests, and they couldn't control the furnace. And you see that in the plots that, <laughs> that, that they have. And then afterwards, you start seeing a series of papers of people questioning whether it can actually be used for timber. And oh, yeah. they they actually say it shouldn't. Yeah, this is the same thing that we've said in our paper that, uh, like, not that it shouldn't. I mean... At this at this stage, I think the fire testing is a completely different uh, thing than than fire science. It's it's a useful tool to uh, allow for market control in terms of of what's being used in buildings and a convenient way to set requirements by authorities. So so that's what a fire resistance or fire testing framework is for me today. It's not science. Maybe in some parts it is, but it, mostly it's not. It's replicating some temperature curve and yeah. Yeah, but it. it it gets questionable to me because what what I'm seeing is is that people propose new timber flooring systems that are hybrids. Their approach may just be to do modeling to it, but there's no assessment really of what it's going to do. And even in a in a fire test, you're limited by the size of the the, the furnace itself. Mm -hmm. But some of these proposed flooring systems are hybrid because they want a long span uh, of a timber floor, which can't be assessed in a fire resistance test or, or at least you know to to what it would do in reality so it's yeah that is and and you, you say they they've uh, fought the same battle like a hundred years ago when they were like setting this up and and now a hundred years ago we come to the same conclusions and uh yeah anyway um the historical origins of fire testing so I, i'm gonna lay down a context and and, and you will correct me there was this two paper series by Babroskas and Williamson in the 1970s that have pretty much summarized what was known in terms of where the, these methods came came from and how were they developed. Uh, they actually give a quite a passionate story how the different uh, research units in US were developing their own approaches, how th there was a New York a group of people, Chicago group of people. There were um, there was Edwin Sachs in Europe. There were columns being tested in Germany. And and then in in, a, in in some sort of ma magical way they they've came to a conclusion we need to standardize that and it started in Europe then was let's say transferred to to America ASTM uh, group was formed and in in 1917 if I'm not wrong or maybe 16 they've uh, actually concluded that this curve uh, this this temperature time relation uh, will be the one that's gonna be used from now on 
And I, I absolutely love the paper from Babrowskas because it's it's very thorough and and uh, interesting. And then comes John Gales and says there's a different uh, side of the story. And then you, you pop up with all this amazing material uh, from University of California curse and everything. What's the differences that that you found? What what are the most interesting differences? Well, I think I think it's more just the origins of the ideas. And, okay. And the- when we talk about sacks, we're talking about um, families of fires and then looking at basically risk-based um, approaches uh, to buildings. So basically saying we would have this type of fire or this type of fire and we should assess under a range. And that has generally been attributed to sacks for, um, you know, and they, and they were looking into that originally to adopt into the standard fire. But when you, really trace back things it's not Sachs who came up with that idea it's uh, sylvanus reed who if you know you hear sylvanus reed you probably don't even know who he is mm-hmm. but he develops a series of um uh, of different prescribed fires and he goes even further to say that different occupancy or different types of buildings will have different types of fires and that they need to be assessed accordingly. We are talking late 19th century, right? Yeah, 1896 is when wow. Reed does his work. And how we, how I found Reed was, I, I, I did the classic academic search, is who was Wilson's academic supervisor? And then I found who he was, and then I looked at his students. And then he was uh, a furnace designer, mm-hmm. the supervisor. And then Reed and Wilson were both his students. And like students of a supervisor, you know, they, 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 they always take, you know, they, they have to be different. So, uh, the, you know, one, one person will favor this type of testing procedure. Mm. The other person will favor this. So Wilson does woodstock huts, Reed does furnaces, uh, with different, uh, uh, different temperature, uh, exposures. So it starts really kind of identifying where the technology begins and that origin as to you know how standard fire testing using furnaces starts to evolve, um, but you wouldn't have picked that up by just looking at Sachs uh, or uh, Wilson because that narrative isn't there, and it's not a fault of Brabascus and Williamson for when they were doing their paper. The challenge was is that was done in the 1970s, and again mm-hmm. technology there was no digitization. You would go to the library, and that's where you would get your materials. And Brabraskis was very fortunate that 50, 60 years before, there was a course on fire design at University of California that had all these materials uh, already there. Um, So our paper comes along, and it's now looking at things that weren't accessible during that time. And then it starts filling in these missing links to that narrative. But it's not all the missing links. There, there's, there's still more out there. It's just not digitized yet. I, I wonder what what it uncovers. Maybe, maybe there was a paper in 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 sixteen that said that no, don't don't do this standardized test. It's gonna end up horrible. Well, there is a missing link paper that we haven't found, and the missing link paper is the one of the meeting where Wilson and the rest of them are sitting down and saying these are the points. And we just can only guess as to what that narrative is. And Wilson says it's arbitrary, but we just don't definitively have a document that says conclusively, this is why. We just have, we think it's this. And a lot of our history papers are all, 
you know, filling in blanks based on our opinions that are subjective, but there is no mm. physical paper right now that's been digitized that says the points are this because. Uh, when I was watching, I think it was lectures of Jose Torero in, in Princeton, and, and he was drawing the, the standard curve and point he mentioned that it was a curve that encompassed every other curves that were at the time. And it was a compromise because it was like the one that covered them all. And then I look in your paper at figure eight, where you have uh, your points uh, based on your best recollection. And it seems it doesn't look <laughs> like that. Like you're saying that the, the missing link is actually the sources of all the data points that led to this establishment of the standard curve or? No, that just say, that say it is that, because right now we have all these different, you know, myths. We have myths of saying it's enveloping everything. We have myths of saying it's melting points. We don't have a paper that says the time and temperature at this point is okay. because of this. We have papers that imply it, but we don't have somebody saying it directly is is what we're missing and there should be a document out there because they did mm -hmm. meet twice to define the curve and uh it's just that hasn't come to light and the meeting minutes that exist just say it's arbitrary yeah but even that though the key paper is missing um i, I guess you could figure out uh in a way, where, where did it come from? The, the temperatures and the duration, maybe the, the criteria, right? So it, it's simplified. And the way it's simplified is, is that you have the New York tests, which are being controlled about um, uh, five hours or so, uh, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And then uh, Wilson is involved in those. And if you actually look at who was actually involved, you'll see Wilson's names associated with those tests, although it's not commonly known that he was. In 1902, Wilson develops uh, a new standard which responds to the criticism of that test, and he lowers the temperature from 2000 to 1700. And he also lowers the duration uh, of the uh, of the test, so you start seeing themes of time and temperature. And Wilson publishes a paper in 1912, which has a catalog of all the tests that him and Rudolf Miller were doing. And they uh, start with the New York tests, and there's about 80 some odd tests. And then what Wilson starts talking about is uh, is an idea of making sure that the older tests, not just the New York tests, but, you know, UL tests and, and all that kind of stuff is, is then uh, still captured by a new standard. And that's one of the comments he makes in his, his notes. But if you look at, if you just plot out the, the, the points at one hour, 1700 degrees Fahrenheit is when the temperature is assumed to have risen inside whatever hut or furnace they're using. And then if you just look at the standard, it's a straight line up until four hours, which is 2000 uh, degrees Fahrenheit, because that was the constant test. So it's not definitive that that is what they did. It's just this could be what they've done if you look at it. And it does seem to really simplify the narrative of saying you have two standards and it's a linear line between the two. And that's a very simplified way of saying it. But nevertheless, 
it's still, you know, no one knows why it's one hour. No one knows why it's four hours at this particular temperature. There's some bits, but it's not a definitive statement that says that's what it is. Did they fuel the, the furnace with, uh, with timber, with, with coal, with gas, oil? What did they use? Oh, they just threw timber in. Yeah. And then, and then they moved to furnace design. And so Wilson eventually gives up on the, uh, the hut approach and then they move into a furnace design. And that's why Reed was so important is that Reed started with a furnace. Sachs uses a furnace too, but Reed is, you know, uh, pushing that narrative, uh, initially and, uh, and then eventually they, they've, uh, settled, uh, on, on the, uh, on a curve in 1916, but they do call it arbit arbitrary. So Maybe it actually has no basis and it's just made up. But in, in your in your study, you've uh, analyzed ASTM uh, minutes of the meetings, and you've also went through like uh, the journals of the time, uh, the books of the time, even newspapers uh, of that time. W what were you looking at in, in the newspapers, actually? Well, th this gets to uh, it's it's more of the controversy, and it didn't make it into the paper. Perfect. And. Um, <laughs> And we, we we can talk about it actually because it's it's really interesting. Is um, we we have about one or two sentences in the paper that say that there's controversy surrounding mm -hmm. the tests and especially the New York tests. And what happened was is that there was a political inquiry around 1899 that was looking for corruption. Uh, basically, the Republicans and the Democrats uh, in New York uh, were <laughs> fighting each other, yeah, which yeah. hasn't changed. And, and, uh, what happened is, is they found that the democratic party was giving money to buy up shares of the concrete industry and the concrete industry was not trusted in terms of that the material mm -hmm. wasn't trusted at the time because people were uncertain about how it would behave. And so they would buy, they're buying up stocks, but because they also had control of the city in terms of the municipal approval of uh, building systems, there is a very big conflict of interest associated to it that resulted in a whole inquiry where people were being called in to basically testify about where money was going in the approval process of uh, concrete flooring systems. And then eventually, I think two or three years later, concrete flooring systems were allowed with a fire test uh, in New York. Uh, at that point. Um, so that narrative was glossed over um, because it's it's interesting, but it's not really painting the picture as to where the curve came from. It's just painting the picture to... Uh, it's a lot more of a colorful story. But it's that, <laughs> that, that's the background on. that they had to work with. And obviously it was a new technology back then. Like we maybe in a way that we face electric vehicles or I don't know uh, photovoltaics now nowadays and smart buildings and like we also have this this types of of very colorful backgrounds around some technologies with forces pushing to one side or to another side not necessarily fueled by merit by but by business yeah and that, that these things has not changed much uh, since the since the late nineteenth century for sure. Um, one thing that makes me uh, so interested in, in studying the origins of, of the fire testing is uh, I, I ask myself the question, how big is the impact of, of, of the decisions taken in these rooms in 1916 over the next building I'm going to design? Because like uh, 
you, you can ridicule it. You can say that uh, we are using the best practices of 19th century that that led to the definition of of the of the fire curve to design 21st century uh, buildings. Yeah, and and in a way we do. So uh, after studying this in 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 the great detail, how do you feel about the fact that that these decisions, in a way, are are today shaping the the buildings we have today? Well, I think I think when you look at it, it 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 was that their decisions were based on technology at the time and that's how they made their decisions and what's i think really disappointing is the technologies that we have at our disposal right now like you do work on developing some new ways of measuring and and i'm doing the same thing with with some ways to measure stuff but it seems as though we're basing that basing everything on technologies from the late 1890s at like thermocouple readings, um, especially in you know North, North America, we're, we're plate thermometers in some places are we're not even there yeah. yet. <laughs> so, um, and the buildings are, are designed to that technology. If you want to go further back, the sprinkler system is a is arguably a 18th mm-hmm. century technology that uh, we have. I guess we we've lost a lot of innovation. I think in terms of looking at how technology could actually help us understand these buildings a little bit better. And I think... There's a quote in your paper that I really enjoy, and I, I'll read it. To suggest the standard temperature time heating curve still serves its original purpose to this day is to argue that no advancements have been made in fire science, instrumentation, or even structural engineering since 1916, which is not correct. This is really powerful, and even if you take, like, uh, architecture, like, let, let's drop the materials, drop everything. We're building buildings in a completely different way. Like we're having open space buildings, we're having uh, big atria. I mean, our structures are completely different than the ones that, that that were at the time where this was originated. Maybe back then, the compartment fires were the most critical ones. Now, obviously, compartment fires are still uh, possibly one of the biggest sources of, of fatalities in fires. But uh, I would argue they pose a significant structural fire engineering problem. Because, I mean, there's a reason why why traveling fires were were um, defined and, and why parametric fires were introduced at some point. The fire is not necessarily as it was understood in the 19th century. That, that there's a reason for for that that we changed our minds because there was some so much brilliant research done in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and and none of that has found a way to the standardized mm-hmm. fire testing. There was there were things that were built around standardized fire testing, parametric curves, uh, RWS tunnel curves, now traveling fires. It's nice additions in the same let's say direction, but it does not really amend the fire testing. You mentioned you didn't look that much after 1920, but did you notice like uh, these attempts to amend the fire testing in a way? Well, it's difficult. Um, to look at the ASTM after 1930 for two reasons. The first reason is is that the copyright laws restrict the digitization of those files to be read. So if you do look at them, and um, so we're fortunate in Canada that Queen's University actually has all the ASTM uh, meetings, what you see actually is the proceedings start becoming smaller and smaller and they're not they're not transcribing the discussion anymore and it's just really we're making this change to the standard but it doesn't really talk about 
what really happened at the meeting. And when you go today too, like if you go, you're, you're, you're going to learn a lot as to what, what's happening behind the scenes. But for you to look at, up what happened at that meeting and what was said at that meeting, it's not recorded. So you, you, you lose that context as to what, what's happening with the, um, uh, with that story. So if you want to look at 1930 to, you know, 1980 and what was happening with that standard, it's hard to find materials that say how often somebody might've said, let's revisit it. You get a few snippets here and there, but you don't get a, a full story of what was happening. We, we know that there were tries. We, we know the, the story of Inigberg who tried to like calculate the, the area underneath temperature curve to get comparison between different fires. And we know how that didn't go as planned in, in a way and how it was a, a blind street uh, they, they've entered. So, so maybe um, after that, uh, people were less encouraged to, to change. I, I don't know. Well, they, they still tried. They, they still tried. There was all these other equivalency uh, measures yeah. that people were bringing up and, uh, And, and things, you know, especially in the 1960s when um, steel was getting a lot of research done, there was a lot of people looking into that. And you do start seeing some mm. alternative solutions emerge uh, for uh, steel structures that weren't necessarily solely focused on making a fire resistance. So it was, you know, basically, do you have any actual fuel there? Can you justify exposed steel uh, members and... Um, some of that was actually happening. Uh, so, but that was outside of the standard. That, that's really um, interesting uh, how, how, how these things evolved to the place where, where we are today. And now, now I start to worry we need to write better meeting notes if anyone wants to dig through our archive in, in, in like 100 years. Well, yeah, well, that, that was a critique we actually got on our paper is about the, the discussion wasn't happening at ASTM. And I was like, there was a whole conference we held two years ago that talked about the, uh, the standard <laughs> yeah. fire in a way. But um, uh, but meeting notes in, in, in general, I, I think, you know, like we there is a, there is some privacy that has to of be course, respected yeah. at a lot of these meetings, especially, you know, and having people to feel that they can openly talk about things. And we, we see that today uh, very much. And uh, and as well, you, you sometimes also have to like uh, distinguish between the voice of a person or, uh, based on their experience and the interest of the organization they represent, because we know how normalization works. And it's, it's not just passionate people about uh, about uh, fire. It's usually it's normal that that industry has a significant voice in the in the discussions and uh, and this voice sometimes represents what's the best for the industry, not necessarily what's the safest or best for uh, for fire protection or what's considered a disruptor of the uh, of the industry and uh, and they, it can have a very large uh, economic Im impact to change the way something is being done. Um, I think one of the other big dangers about all this transcription stuff, and especially when we look at history, you know, a hundred years from now, when somebody else is going around looking at how did we define uh, the procedures to adopt these new buildings that we are, if, you know, there isn't context there, there is a very big risk of somebody perverting the history and having it just say, the, mm. say what they want it to say 
which can be a big danger when you're when you're studying uh, history stuff uh, is you have to be uh, very neutral. I think we're quite quite safe in this uh, regard because in hundred years, if someone wants to go through my Teams meetings that are recorded, they will just not be able to find the codec to <laughs> to play the video. So case solved. Or they just use the Twitter feed that's archived. We need to uh, carve Twitter feeds on, on stone to, to preserve it for, for entire generations to come. Um, in your research, uh, and uh, that's the second paper that I really liked, was um, the, the experiments or research on the uh, fire performance of heritage uh, encapsulation materials. And in, in a way, it themes to the uh to the history of, of fire testing because uh fire testing was developed to test materials and test solutions and here in this other paper you're talking about solutions that existed at that time so w- w- what made you uh go through historical uh historical ways to protect uh, uh mass timber uh, of the time yeah well it it started looking at um the uh the origins mm. of fire testing in general. And uh, in the 1700s, there was um, David Hartley and uh, Charles Mohan who were doing a whole series of fire testing. And it was like the renaissance of science at that time where uh, everyone was testing whatever they could, uh, however they could. Uh, Mohan was looking at a plaster system. Hartley was looking at a steel plate system. So this origins of testing came came about, and then Holland does like a re- reproduction test. And the reason Holland does this is that he had a theater burned down, or at least his colleagues had a theater burned down, and they wanted to basically design the most um, state of the art theater in the 1700s using all the technologies of the time. And his tests were based on houses. So he, he, mm. he burnt some houses down with, the, with these materials. And he said, okay, they work, so I'm going to put them in my theater. Well, right away, we start seeing problems that we have today, where we take a, a test data point and we extend it to a condition that you know, isn't, isn't what was tested. And um, so they build the theater and it uses the steel plating mm-hmm. system on top of timber and this plaster. And, of course, the plaster mm-hmm. will fall off during a fire. The steel plates are conducting heat through anyway. So we, we know qualitatively what these materials were doing. And um, so what happens is, is that theater actually catches on fire this one that they'd fire designed. And because it was a theater, they used a sprinkler system the night before as part of the theatrical performance. So the water system was drained. So the sprinkler system didn't work. And the curtain rusted shut, so the curtain didn't come down either. So the whole uh, wow. theater's lost. And uh, so what what kind of happened is two, two things came out of that. Is one, a lot of architects were really mad at me for writing about that uh in, <laughs> really yeah because henry holland is considered a very famous architect and he did all this fire testing that didn't work in fact his theater burnt down but no one mentions that in his biographies and things like that so they were upset that we were saying trash about henry holland and uh then the the other thing that that occurred is we were trying to get some photos for the paper 
and we found that there was a mill that still had David Hartley's fire plates. And we got very excited and the owner of the mill got very mad at us for being very excited because we were like, oh, we're getting a photo for our paper. This is great. And then the owner said, no, this is horrible. Because of heritage restrictions, I'm not allowed to remove these uh, steel plates. And because there's water logging behind the timber, the steel plates are adding extra load and they're collapsing my building, but I'm not allowed to remove them. So at that point, we started to do some testing just to see, you know, how bad are these things uh, or how, you know, how, how do they compare to modern things? So we used a cone collimator to do the a controlled heat source onto the surface because we wanted something that we could actually compare and we wanted to do heat flux, not temperatures. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then it just resulted in the catalog of these don't work and uh, they're probably even worse for your structure, uh, <laughs> even though there's heritage principles that conserve them. So um, uh, in front of my eyes, I have your, uh, description of the compositions of these materials and it's it's uh, it's like fascinating to read that um yeah. mahon's plaster one measure rough sand two measures slack lime three measures chop hay well mixed with water yay I, i've made the rhyme at the end <laughs> but uh, that's 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 a fantastic I like think uh, one has ground clamshells or something like that in it yes yes there is there is uh the uh, holland plaster uh in, in your author's composition it's 75 milliliter seashell yeah. so <laughs> that's that's, yeah, that's the stu- amazing the students had to break the, se- the seashells in the lab to, to to replicate the the composition which uh the, the worst was the hay the, the hay really smelled the, Okay, like um, I don't think we put hay into modern uh, fuels. We use hay in fire testing, but let's say for the quite opposite uh, reason than the fire protect. Well, and it, and it does what you think it does. It's just at the time in the 1700s, they they were just exploring uh, uh, different types of uh, different types of things. But that breaks right. Like the the research from the 1700s and into the early 1800s doesn't really actually affect how the standard fire was coming to be because it, it stops and then you get this renaissance around 1860, 1870. So there was like a half century gap between like this technology being developed and, uh, and used. And then it possibly took some conflagrations to happen to realize there is a bigger issue with, there is a bigger problem with fire overall. And that the concrete was in, introduced as well. So it also changed a bit. Yeah. But it's also, they didn't have technology to to measure anything oh yeah so the so the, they they couldn't measure temperature and you know they could do they could do a fire they could look at the materials after a fire but they couldn't actually do anything scientifically until there was a way of measuring and john we are talking about the time where uh, the phlogiston theory was the leading one and it was actually pre uh, discovery of oxygen and writing how oxygen works so so that's uh, this this kind of ancient uh, fire science we, we are talking about i mean uh, this research is closer to great fire of london than to our times so yeah, the, the, it's really the the ancient technology in in here you also mentioned copper plates and and i was like wow why 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 would you use copper plates in cuz cuz they kind of work in a way, it's just massively in expensive. your uh, in your research. I see they work. How, it's just the fact that they transfer all the heat away, like a giant radiator, or it, it it's a it's a short duration exposure we use. Okay, right? so so in that sense, it worked. But what what it is is that 
And if there's any criticism of that, our copper plates were shiny, okay. right? Whereas, you know, if you look at a mm. heritage building and you look at a copper plate there, it's... Covered, it's, covered with oxides, yeah. Yeah, so it's not going to have the same uh, properties when you're... And especially when you're using radiative heat mm. uh, onto the surface. But then one plate of copper on that 100 by 100 millimeter sample cost, I think, $150. Okay, yeah. So... <laughs> And the students almost threw it out. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> After the test, I was like, don't throw it away. No, no, no. I, I'm, we are testing a lot of cables in ITB, and uh, I, I know I, I know these eyes of people when they see this, uh, I don't know, half ton of copper cables going into the furnace and being burned down completely, and they just see it, 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 it melts away. <laughs> um, so... Uh, and you compare these uh, these solutions to like modern gypsum boards and stuff like that. How how they how did the, the plasters rank? Or so you said the plasters fell down, but did you actually manage to to have the plaster uh, uh, stay on the top of a surface and, and measure something with no. it? No, no, the plasters. So so if you test in the cone and you test from top to bottom, the mm. plaster will stay there because it's you know, it's lying. Yeah. But if you if you test on the side which you can do on, uh, on the cone, the plaster will just like tip right off because um, it's not really adhered in. Mm. Whereas your modern technology is screwed in. So yep. your gypsum board, and we did a, we did a type X gypsum board just for comparison. Uh, and, you know, obviously it, it, it does a better job in that sense. Yeah. The, in that particular paper, the comparison showed that yeah we we have engineered solutions uh, that uh, you know are not just I'm going to throw all these things together and say it works. If I recall correctly, NITB also had some interesting research on cast iron elements, and uh, we were like purchasing uh, columns uh, from very old buildings and uh, and trying to to crush them in, in fire and test the fire protection systems of these columns. Uh, I'm not, uh, I think the paper was in preparation. I think it has some trouble in the review because it's very difficult to define what kind of cast iron it is and what's its properties because we literally, uh, we may not know that very well. We we know more or less from which, uh, from which part of Poland it comes, but it, there's a original flavor to cast iron everywhere. So it's, it's very uh, difficult. And yeah, it's really hard to get. Uh, over here, in terms of doing experiments on cast iron, you so. you you were uh, yeah they don't produce it <laughs> anymore <laughs> in that in that in that way. Um, I was wondering, it's obviously interesting. It's on its own to be able to to test uh, heritage materials, but let's say you're an engineer and you face a very practical issue. You have a heritage um, building that has some like old protection ways. Like, is there any way to provide like uh, historical accuracy or, or like preserve the, the historical value and protect the, the building? Maybe you found some materials that, that can replace the old ones and, and be like historically accurate or, or, or not really. You have to go modern. Yeah, I think, I, I think there, there, there's a balance to play. And I think a lot of people are really struggling with that conservation is to you know, what, what can you change in the building to make sure that it, it's going to be somewhat fire safe, uh, with things and what new technologies might interfere with keeping that, um, 
that appearance. So there's there is definitely a struggle that definitely does not have enough people looking at it to uh, coming up with op- optimum solutions. I think what you have to be careful about is if there is a technology that somebody says is supposed to help with the fire that is very old and somebody's using that as part of their assessment that says that the building is is protected from fire I think there's some value from recent research to say, actually, no, that technology is not doing anything other than it's there for conservation purposes uh, uh, and and such. And in some cases, in the in building I mentioned, they can actually be acting to destroy the building. Um, mm-hmm. So there is there is a very big balance to play there uh, and to consider. And then in terms of you know some of these other technologies that we might put in. Well, if you want to have a timber building and you want to use modern technologies like gypsum board, you're covering up the timber. So now all of a sudden you've you've lost that architectural feature that makes it the heritage building. So it, it there is no real answer to say that, you know, the, this is this is um, what you should do. Each building is going to be very different and each building may be missing something and it comes down to risk. I mean, I, I would put it uh, in, in this way that if you have a heritage building like a cathedral, Notre Dame being a most notable recent uh, example, like if you, if you lose it in fire, you lost it in fire and that's it. You don't have it anymore. If your pursuit of historical accuracy uh, led to what historically happened in such buildings, because there's a reason why there's not many of them left, uh, they they usually were destroyed in one way or another. Uh, so, so, so like preserving this aspect uh, and losing the building, uh, I mean, it didn't it didn't really serve well. So, and that, that we have modern technologies that that can help in in securing these types of buildings, and. Uh, I'm not sure I, um, if you deal with, with the historical buildings that much. Well, the, the, the problem where we are in Toronto, and it's actually helped our research, but in Toronto, heritage is being treated as um, just to look at the facade and maintain the facade of the building okay. and not the interior of the building. So what happens is, is people are demolishing these buildings and then building up all these uh, condos and high-rise buildings in their place. So we're losing them really quickly. Um, how it's benefited our research is when one is being knocked down, we show up with a flatbed truck and we collect the columns <laughs> and, the, and the bricks. And the, That's cool. Uh, and it's the reality as to uh, how it's being treated over here. It's it's certainly not treated very well. So it, it, it's a it's a tough thing to to look at. But in a way, it's kind of helped us in terms of being able to actually assess these materials because we've been able to get access to, you know, 150 year old timber beams that are coming fresh out, out of a building, a real building Mm. uh, to the same size and being able to actually, you know, assess those, which is then useful for when you look at, if you want to understand hardwoods and how they perform in fire, especially if they're uh, aged or in certain types of conditions you can understand a little bit more about what the risk is associated to leaving them exposed uh, in a very large setting. Could actually be very beneficial because uh, if it can help you understand how the modern buildings uh, built with the structural timber would would act would behave in like uh, 50 years, 100 years, and uh, to to assess uh, how they perform in fire. Well, maybe. 
that's a problem of future generation of fire engineers. Well, what we've seen is is actually the modern timbers do uh, under comparable heat fluxes that we impose their incident. We see that the modern ones do much better, um, and it has a lot to do with the the growth of the grain uh, associated to it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky subject to, to to look at, but we're still we're still looking at. It. We just finished a paper that we've uh, submitted on it that uh, should be a pretty interesting one. Uh, looking at the radio cracks and heritage structures. So I, w- I would love to uh, read on that. Uh, that's really like a non non destructive imagery of the of the interior of the of the structure. Yeah. Yeah. Just just basically, do you have more charring if you have radio cracking on your uh, timber column uh, penetrating into the core of the column? Which is a that's really good. Uh, what, what the journey it was in in, in this episode from uh, developing the oh, we could talk for hours. I, I know <laughs> from from breaking into a, your archives uh, through uh, the how the curve was created, the standard time temperature curve, then back a hundred years before <laughs> to uncover plaster, and now uh, to talk about the future and preserving heritage and. And it's all within the the same narrative of historical uh, origins. I, I hope that people from the audience will send some uh, question and feedback if you're interested in this narrative. Maybe, maybe we should force John to write a book on that or something. <laughs> I don't know. No, we're already writing another book. Um, really? It is on heritage, but it's on evacuation modeling. And uh, I know your research on anthropogenic uh, changes in, in, in the models of people and how how the evacuation has evolved in time so that that's another <laughs> this is what this is what makes fire fun yeah uh, to, to study there's so much that you can study and you're always there's always an idea and <laughs> it's not hard to come up with an idea you just say, wonder what happens to that type of building <laughs> you have you have a project <laughs> that, that's uh, that's so good um so John, thank you very much for joining me in here, and I wish all the best in your research in in your in your emerging uh, fire group. Well, it's actually quite uh, quite a successful group, not not longer an emerging one. We've kind of swelled in size over the last. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, yeah. I, I I really hope we can get we can get the momentum going so that we can expand the number of faculty because <laughs> it's 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 pretty tough right now. I, I'm all so. I'm always looking. For forward to the new new fire research coming out from york thanks so much for for joining me in here thank you yeah see you around man thank you very much yep and and that's it uh it was a really great uh, chatting with with john about the origins of uh standardized fire testing and uh, these narratives that he've uncovered it's absolutely fascinating to learn how how these things came to life and how the choices of the engineers back then still have effect on, on modern buildings. I, I actually found it quite interesting and, and fun in a way how John described the scandal that uh, was uh, connected with the origins of fire testing, with this uh, concrete flaws, uh, w- with these fights between Democrats and Republicans and who owned the concrete business back then, uh, and possibly so, so some illegal activities there that's John actually after the talk has sent me a really interesting paper about uh, about this uh, this scandal and inquiry and it, it's really interesting to, uh, to to read it and learn that the origins of your field may not actually be as as clean as you thought it it's really it's really interesting 
So I, I hope you enjoyed the episode and in the podcast, I'm going to try to come back to the historical aspects of our discipline a lot and uh, and interview people who, who have knowledge about how things came to existence and where the magic numbers came from and how the modern testing methods, how the modern materials were created, because um, it's it's something that, that usually is very worth to understand and know maybe not directly useful in your everyday fire safety engineering practice, but it gives you another view, another another light on how the techniques, solutions uh, are, are used today. What was their origin? What were they in, intended for? So um, for the historical episode, that's all. Uh, in the next week, I'm going to prepare you a true fire science episode. I'm going to take the mic again on my own and uh, introduce you to the world of measuring temperatures. John has mentioned a bit about that in, in today's episode and how the people of the time when the fire curve was designed were limited by their ability to measure. And today we were still limited in ways and maybe not, not with the ability to measure, but with the ability to understand our measurements. And that's something that I would love to touch on. So I hope you look forward to the next episode. See you next Wednesday. And yeah, thank you very much for listening to the Fire Science Show. See you around. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.